Hello and welcome to ACS Chemical Biology's podcast for October 2013. I'm Chase Suarez, Managing Editor for the Journal. The International Chemical Biology Society Symposium just concluded in Kyoto, Japan. For a quick summary on the meeting, please visit our community site and follow Brandon Finlay's blog posts. The current issue of ACS Chemical Biology comprises 29 articles, including a paper by Alex Dieters, who talks about his latest caged nucleic acid work to alter gene expression. I have Alex here on the phone to tell us more about the article. Hello, Alex. Hi, Jitesh. So, to start off with, my first question to you is, several biomolecular tools have been previously described to modulate gene expression using antisense agents. Why the need for another method, then? Well, as you know, nature regulates gene function with high spatial and temporal resolution in cells organisms, especially during development of organisms. And in order to understand the genetic mechanisms that underlie gene regulation and function, I believe we need tools that can perturb gene function with the same spatiotemporal resolution that nature provides. And although antisense agents have been around for a while, people couldn't really control them with high spatial temporal resolution. And we believe that light is just a great external control element since you can easily you know, regulate its location, timing, and frequency using standard you know, lab equipment like microscopes and standard UV equipment. So what we did is we basically controlled or developed an approach to control antisense function with light by temporarily blocking watson creek base pairing with light removal protecting groups, so-called caging groups. And these will be installed on select nucleobases of an oligonucleotide, completely deactivate the antisense agent so genes are expressed until you radiate with UV light, and then you remove your caging group and your antisense agent becomes active, can now hybridize to the mRNA and induce gene silencing. We have demonstrated that this approach is functional not only in mammalian cells, but also in aquatic embryos, and that it can be used to control gene function with high spatial and temporal resolution. So that's sort of, you know, an advancement that we made over the years in terms of controlling antisense function with a higher resolution using light as an external control element. I see. You partially answered my next question, but could you then further briefly describe your novel strategy for the delivery and activation of the antisense agents you just report in your ACS Chemical Biology publication? Well, so we solved the spatiotemporal control problem, basically. But another problem with antisense agents is that they need to be delivered into cells. So they typically are transfected into cells or are micro-injected into cells or organisms. And we wanted to basically solve both problems at the same time. And we decided to do that by synthesizing those light removable protecting groups or caging groups containing an alkyne handle. And now since we have this alkyne handle on the caging group, we can conjugate cell-penetrating peptides to those antisense agents using a classical 3 plus 2 copper-catalyzed click reaction. And now we have antisense agents that are caged, that are light-controlled, but that also contain, for example, cell-penetrating peptides. So now you can add those antisense agents simply to the media. They will be spontaneously taken up by cells and will not be active until you expose yourself to UV light, which then releases the caging group and at the same time releases the transducing peptide, thereby generating a native antisense agent, which is fully programmable and 
function of that is fully predictable because there's nothing else conjugated to it anymore since we released both the Cajun group and the peptide at the same time. So now we basically solved, as, as we reported in this, in this article, we solved the spatiotemporal control problem and delivery problem of antisense agents using a novel synthetic approach here. And, you know, that has advantages over having permanently covalently attached uh, peptides conjugated to antisense agent because these peptides could potentially impair the function of an antisense agent. But here we photochemically release the peptide after radiation. And we've demonstrated that we can not only apply this to the silencing of a classical reporter gene like luciferase, but also of an endogenous gene, which we targeted EG5 in, in, in these cells. Okay, great. And just to conclude, could you then quickly summarize for us what do you consider the most significant advances that this approach brings to the table? So basically, we're solving two problems here in one synthetic approach, cellular delivery of an antisense agent and temporal and spatial control of an antisense agent are solved, those issues are solved through a light activation approach here. In addition, we showed that we can target those antisense agents to specific cells. I think that's a great advancement here too, where we can not only conjugate a transducing peptides to those oligonucleotides, but also other targeting molecules, for example, folic acid molecules that then deliver those reagents specifically into HeLa cells over MCF7 cells, so we can selectively have them target cervical cancer cells or breast cancer cells. And uh, that could all be done with the same very modular approach. And I think it will be, you know, eventually applicable to other oligonucleotide functions, like, for example, DNA decoys and triplex-forming oligos, small interfering RNAs. All these could basically be made light-activatable and also could be um, taken up by cells fairly easily using the same approach. You can basically use any light source or UV light source that you have, simple handheld UV lamps that you have, transilluminators, xenomercury lamps, you can use the equipment on your microscope. So, so all this taken together, I think we're solving some important delivery and control issues using very simple approaches here, which I think will make this broadly applicable and hopefully the community will pick that up and use this approach to control gene function in live cells and organisms. Absolutely. Some significant advances there. And thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Our final author for today is Everett Stone, who reports a taurine biosynthesis pathway in prokaryotes. Hello, Everett. Hi, how are you doing? Great. And excited to be talking about this new biosynthetic pathway that you have. So I'll dive right into the first question, which is uh, your current paper in ACS Chemical Biology establishes for the first time a taurine biosynthesis pathway in prokaryotes. What exactly is taurine, and what is known about its role in eukaryotes? Well, taurine is the major route of uh, cysteine metabolism. Basically, the IL side chain of cysteine gets oxidized, typically to a sulfonic or sulfonic acid. And then an enzyme called CSAT, or cysteine sulfonic acid decarboxylase, will take off the alpha carboxyl group, and that ends up in either taurine or hypotaurine. Hypotaurine is the sulfonic acid form, and that can act as a redox buffer itself and we can further oxidize all the way to taurine, which is the sulfonic acid version. And eukaryotes, especially the higher mammals, use it almost everywhere. Cats have to have it in their diet. They don't make it, and so that's why they're an obligate carnivore. They need that from a dietary source that contains it. 
So it's quite all over the place, and I don't understand every role it has. Uh, the ones that make most sense to me are probably like bile salt formation in liver. It combines with a uh, fatty molecule, and then you have this highly uh, charged sulfonic acid moiety on the end, so it's a very good detergent. It's also involved in um, neurotransmission, neuromodulation, and it's around. So I'm curious, I'm sure our readership has the same question. How did you end up finding this new biosynthetic pathway in prokaryotes then? In a very roundabout manner, we totally fell down the rabbit hole with this one. Our lab that likes to play with enzymes for kind of therapeutic purposes, we're very interested in how we can tweak substrate specificity towards therapeutic goals, like we may want a cancer therapeutic or we may want a, you know, enzyme replacement therapy or something like that. We like to alter things a little bit. So I was very curious in having a decarboxylase on board because this could potentially decarboxylate any amino acid I was interested in. And we started playing with two human enzymes, one that makes taurine, the cysteine sulfonic acid decarboxylase, and one that makes the inhibitory neurotransmitter GABA, this glutamate decarboxylase. Luckily, there were some published structures, and we started looking at them. There was like these three differences in the active site, and we're like, ah, that must be why they have slightly different substrate specificities. And then we did some mutational studies and saw that those three residues did play a role in substrate specificity. And then we kind of branched out into this kind of phylogenetic setting. We're like, okay, well, let's just see how many enzymes out there in the tree of life have these three amino acids. And we noticed that it was a very linear uh, setup to where these sequence a very distinct motif or pattern or fingerprint, if you will. And we were pretty sure of the one, the motif that made the enzyme specific for making taurine, this cysteine sulfonic acid decarboxylase activity, and we kept cropping up in these very odd marine bacteria genomes. And we're like, well, that's not right. You know, our literature search suggested that no bacteria had ever made it. The only other hint that we had was a recent, I don't know, Three or four years ago, another group discovered that there was the upstream enzyme, the cysteine dioxygenase, that oxidizes the side chain thiol. So when then when we found these two enzymes, at least genomically, sitting right next to each other in several cases, we're like, ah, this has to be it. And then just for further proof, we cloned the enzymes, and sure enough, they had activity, and we actually got the bacteria, and we're normally an E. coli lab, so we had, like, grow lights on our lab culturing these bacteria we never thought we would culture. Yeah, we started out with this almost engineering aim and ended up just being totally fascinated by what life is already doing out there. My final question to you then is, why exactly do you think prokaryotes produce taurine? Well, that is the million-dollar question, right? We certainly don't have a definitive answer for that. One clue that was interesting to us is that it was only in marine bacteria. They seem to have the requirement that they be living in this saltwater environment. We never saw any freshwater or gut bacteria. There's no other commonality we could find. So one suspicion is that they're using it as an osmoprotectant, and that's, there's some evidence for that in the literature that some organisms can use this as an osmoprotectant. It may be, of course, something different, but that's our guess at the moment. Something about the marine environment. Right. Sounds good. Thanks for talking to us today. Well, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. 
To learn more about our authors of the manuscripts in the current issue, please see the Introducing Our Authors section on the web. This month, we feature 13 young scientists, Julia Agnello, Stian Asper, Sambarshiva Benala, Kenneth Clevenger, Carrera Joko, Jean Govan, Malgorzata Korbas, Fei-Yang Liu, Elizabeth Parkinson, Daniel Pastor Flores, Fiona Rowan, Merrill Thomas, and Xander Van Wyck. Read this section and get a younger chemical biologist's perspective on their research. We continue to describe chembioglossary terms on the air. This month's key phrase is WW domain, which is one of the smallest known protein modules comprised of 40 amino acids, including two highly conserved tryptophan residues that bind proline-rich peptide motifs and phosphorylated serine threonine proline sites. For more information on WW domains, please refer to the manuscript by Joshua Price and colleagues in the current issue. That's it for this month's show. Join us again next month for more ACS Chemical Biology highlights and interviews with our authors. To learn more about the journal, please visit us at pubs.acs.org forward slash journal forward slash ACBCCT. Thanks to all of you for listening.